0: To the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. I can't. Hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for tuning into the show. Uh, Today, we delve into nutrition and the tennis athlete. Um, And as my website and podcast are geared, um, parents, players, old or young, and coaches um, will walk away with something. Um, It's just not for the players. Uh, In fact, uh, coaches and tennis pros and and parents can learn something here as well about uh, nutrition and hydration. Uh, My guest is Dr. Mark Kovacs. He's a performance physiologist, researcher, uh, professor, author, speaker, and a coach with an extensive background um, in researching with elite athletes. He is known as the go-to expert for elite and professional athletes, uh, corporate executives and performance artists uh, looking for science-based programming to optimize human performance, he holds a Ph.D. in exercise physiology and speaks from firsthand experience as an All-American at Auburn University, an NCAA doubles champion, played on the tour for some time, and uh, he's the CEO of COVAX Institute. He oversees the direction and testing and protocols, uh, athlete monitoring programs, along with his staff, and he also consults with a variety of organizations, uh, such as the USTA, ITA, um, the ITPA. Um, which is Performance Association, and the one thing you'll find in our time together is Mark is really good at explaining, and we were just talking about this before uh, the podcast, is uh, making it simple, you know, taking the difficult thing and keeping it simple, um, and uh, along those lines, um, I'd like to plug a, a, one of his books that I've used Um it's a great book in terms of explaining if how deep you want to go, but it explains the basics in tennis anatomy and what you do about it in terms of your fitness. It's called Tennis Anatomy, Your Illustrated Guide for Tennis Strength, Speed, Power, and Agility, and there are differences between those things, and you learn that in the book. Um, you can purchase it directly on my wa- website or go actually to uh, his website at Kovacs. Um, what is your website, Mark.
1: Yeah, it's curvexinstitute.com.
0: Yeah, and so there's tons of stuff on there, um, and in fact, he's got uh, um, some upcoming events. We'll talk about those in a bit for footwork, and he's, he's quite busy. So uh, with no further ado, I'd like to welcome Mark back for the second time. He did a prior show with me, and when we talked about the physiology and speed and power and how to develop those. So Mark, uh, thanks again for joining me.
1: Yeah, no problem at all. Super excited to be on. Love the work you do, and this is such a great podcast. You have so many great people on. It's always great to be back on and talking about, you know, some tennis-specific topics that we both really enjoy, so thanks again for the opportunity.
0: Well, this is awesome, because I uh, just got off the court, actually, this morning. Um, I was... uh you know, for my uh, my daughter, she's thirteen. She's uh, she's technically pretty sound, uh, good little athlete, and uh, she was she played for three hours. She played against one person for about an hour and a half, and then she or training, and then she played against another person for an hour and a half. And um, one of the people, after we talked, I said, uh, you know, about we were talking about the podcast, and she says, "Oh my gosh!" She goes, "That's huge." She says, "Half the people on my team." you know, don't, don't hydrate enough, they don't eat enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, anyway, so it's very apropos. And before we get going, because I want to turn this over, you know, the questions and everything will be geared for Mark to give us his wisdom. But I do want to make this really practical and um, give you an analogy here. Tennis players and coaches spend thousands of hours on court training technique, Uh, tactical, psychological, mental, and other aspects of the game. In fact, maybe the last couple uh, items there, people don't spend enough time on them, but I'll throw those in there. So, But certainly, many players and coaches neglect the nutritional component, or if they pay attention to it, I would say most deal with it at a functional, but not at an optimal level. And Mark knows the optimal level. As an analogy, I had a uh, this uh, is years ago, I had a 62 corvette when I lived in Southern California. It was pretty cool, you know, driving around. but uh, particularly after we lost a college match or something, I'd go for a drive that usually assuaged my sorrows. Um, but it was uh, fast and it, you know looked good and all that. But if I put 92 octane gas in it, that was functional, but it wasn't optimal. But there happened to be a gas station that had 102 octane. That was optimal. And I could put that in there, and you could feel the difference in the car. Well, now if I could get racing fuel, that would be even more optimal, but that wasn't practical. So here's the practical. Have you ever trained, people listening out there, have you ever trained or know somebody who's trained so hard for a tournament only to get sick, contract food poisoning, or have some reason to not be fully firing on all cylinders? Happens all the time. Well, why put? intentionally, why put functional food or hydration in your body when you can have 102 high-octane optimal food or nutrition habits? Why go through all the work and then forget your match food or eat too close to a match? That might mess up your energy level. So today, we're going to learn the basics of what each individual can adjust to their habits because we're all different. So they can maximize and habituate their routines so they have a more optimal and consistent performance and that's what Mark's going to help us uh, do. And I'll with one last thing I want to say before we get into this cuz I want to make this uh, I want to uh, discuss a, an issue that I've heard multiple people say. I do not know how many times I've heard parents say and it's all well meaning. Um, they say, "Well, he had Fruit Loops for breakfast, so we'll see how this goes today." Or "She has been a bit under the wetter weather and didn't bring her water bottle." And it's, and it's almost as if sometimes parents, we, on the side of erring to let them learn by experience, it's almost, because we know it's not going to be optimal out there, but the thing I want to help encourage parents to do this today is, by listening to what Mark has to say and how, and all this information, is we have an intentional plan, and it's actually better, I think, to almost insist. You've spent all that time driving the kids around. You spent all the money in these, in these uh, with the lessons and the tournaments, to insist and have a, have a, a backup plan or have uh, food they can take on the court and say, look, you're not going on that court ill equipped. And instead of letting them kind of learn failure by experience, uh, just make sure, you know, be well-equipped and maybe even a podcast that they can listen to. So it's kind of a third person and not coming from mom and dad when they listen to Mark, they go, Oh, okay. I need to do this. So that's one of my hopes is that at least, uh, minimally, uh, players can have a third person expert to help them through all this. So, um, any comments on that so far, Mark, any agreements or disagreements on that, what I've said?
1: No, I think you bring up some really important points about the need to take care of the basics and also the accountability on the athlete or the parent to make sure that we we don't make excuses for ourselves or the people that we care about and just try to help them as best we can.
0: Well, good. Um, Well, here's some general principles, and and I'm just going to throw this out there. And uh, Mark has some... uh, You know, on his website, he's going to have these types of things, um, and I'm going to provide kind of a summary after the podcast, and some of it will include uh, PDFs that Mark's written in certain magazines, um, but things that are accessible, and I've done some summary. I'll make some summary PDFs for people, but um, uh, so what are some of the general principles, just right offhand, um, that you might give our listeners for tournament play or intense training And then we'll go from there. For example, and I'll just uh, sweeten the pot here, you talk about evenly disperse your calories over the day and, you know, general principles like that. So what might be some general principles that uh, people could uh, uh, begin the the lesson with today?
1: Yeah, no, I I think the biggest thing is focusing in on the basics, and there's a lot of nutrition basics that most tennis players at every level, actually— struggle with sometimes. is just taking care of the simple needs. And for example, you brought up one, try not to get all your calories in one meal a day. Um, Many times people are busy, their schedules, they blame it on the schedule or work or life or school. And that's not really an uh, acceptable excuse. We really want to try to get our calories relatively evenly dispersed throughout the day so we don't get major spikes in blood sugar levels and then major drops, and it's a relatively easy concept. The challenge (laughs) is many people don't actually abide by it. And if we look at how you eat, many times you eat possibly one or two big meals a day, uh, and then you may have the occasional snack here, but the the calorie difference is so vast. Like with a lot of our athletes, we do a lot of nutritional analysis, and we'll do actually uh, assessing how many total calories are eaten per day, per hour and even down to the per minute average and the purpose is to highlight that And some of the athletes we've worked with will have a two to three thousand calorie difference from one day to the next just based on whether they eat their meals in one large sitting or whether they break them down over the course of the day
0: well i i know when i was in college i i lifted a lot a lot of people didn't lift back then but i did a lot of, i worked out with a lot of the uh, football players and such but um we used to carry a loaf of bread around with us just to have, so we weren't having ups and downs. And, uh, you know, so I, I think what you're saying here is you, you know, somebody, let's say, you know, you're going to be running late, you know, maybe have in your tennis bag, some kind of a, a, a uh, energy bar or some, you know, some kind of fruit you like or something that, you know, look, if worse comes to shove, I, I, I got something.
1: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. You should always have your go bag is what we call it and really it's uh, something that you can take with you in your backpack in your tennis bag in the car and it's stuff that doesn't really uh, is not really that affected by the heat so you can be <laughs> in the sun That's good. Um, you know so it's not like bananas it's not like something that needs to be refrigerated usually it's nuts it's beef jerky uh, it's pretzels it, there's there's a lot of different things that depending on how you break up your nutrition profile between carbs, fats, and protein, you're going to have a composition that allows you to get the required amounts from your different sources throughout the day.
0: We're going to get into this, but you just mentioned a point. I'm going to throw out – I'm going to kind of jump around because this was I was going to save to later. But so many times after practice, an intense practice or a competition, I hear this, players will say, I am starving. And one of the key basics is you should not walk off a tennis court feeling that way. Is that true?
1: Ideally, yes. We know that that's sometimes hard to accomplish. Um, Players don't always like to eat a lot while they're playing. They don't want to bother their stomach. They have a tough time chewing and digesting. So totally understand the challenges with that concept. But yeah, the ideal scenario is you have enough energy, enough fuel throughout your match that you don't come off the court feeling like you're completely starving and, and need to eat a lot of food immediately.
0: Okay, good, good. Hydration. Let's uh, spend some time on this because you mentioned that 66% of athletes are poorly hydrated. I'll, 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 yeah, so... I'll, I'll one-up you on that. I think most coaches are poorly hydrated, and, I, and I'm one of them. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of those factors which it's very unusual to have an athlete actually walk on court well hydrated, especially at the junior level. The professional level is getting better and better. There's more awareness. There's more people around these athletes that are giving them good advice, that are helping to prep them. But at the junior level, there's a lot of players that just struggle to maintain hydration, especially in hot, humid environments where you're outside a lot. most people don't realize you sweat quite a lot while you sleep and you lose fluid while you sleep. So there's a lot of scenarios to easily lose fluid from the body, yet we typically aren't hydrating well enough going into competition and training. The problem is it's impossible to drink enough during training or competition to replace what you're losing in sweat. We don't expect you to. But what we do expect is to not walk on the court significantly dehydrated. So you're starting in a significant deficit.
0: So here's a practical to this. Um, one of my low points in my TV, uh, you know, watching the ATP was when Federer gassed out in uh, in the Australian Open. He was he was done, and and I remember watching that thinking, oh my gosh, what's wrong? And his whether he's dehydrated or the the feet, uh, the heat affected him tremendously. His decision-making, his ability to emotionally withstand points, even though he won the first set, that is a drastic example of how something can just hit you like a wall. Um, so today, um, uh, as I mentioned with my daughter, I we went out and she played for three hours. So again, she had a, a, tr- a pretty good hard training session for an hour and a half. Then she played some points in a set, etc., with somebody else. And we purposely... I said, just do what you normally do. So we weighed her before, and she's 13, she's teeny, and she's a good little athlete, and everything runs around pretty quick and all that. So I said, do what you normally do. And uh, so that means she doesn't drink a lot of water. And so uh, so we weighed her before, and we weighed her after, and she weighs 93 pounds, and she weighed 91 pounds afterwards. And according to what you say in your work here, less than 2% body weight significant energy performance loss – um, so if you have 2% body weight reduction because of hydration you have you've mentioned that there's about a 10% loss of performance and I've got a question because I we saw that anecdotally today but how do you measure that like when you have done the studies how do you measure there's a 10 point 10% loss of performance is this just physiological or do you actually find ways for their decision making some of the things they do what do you see and what can we recognize As coaches and parents, wow, something's going on because they're definitely different.
1: Yeah, so really, really good point. When we lose, starting at about 2%, anything less than 2%, body weight loss, um, usually you don't see a significant difference in performance. So 1%, 1.5%, you usually don't see a major impact on any aspect of performance. At 2%, that's sort of the threshold that we start seeing – Sort of minor cognitive deficiencies, meaning slower reaction time, response time, things like that. Then we start getting into two and a half, three percent. We start seeing more issues. Once we get to four percent, that's when we really start seeing the 10% or more decreases in speed, strength, power, things like that. So we see anywhere from, you know, one or two percent decrease for the lower level of hydration loss all the way up to 10 or 15 percent loss. And we see that in time trials when we're running people on treadmills to say, hey, how long can you run at six miles an hour without stopping? Or you can do scenarios where we're looking at surf speed. There's been studies on surf speed and we see a surf speed reduction with um, significant dehydration. So it's not only physiological responses, the impact it has on blood flow and the ability for the body to utilize oxygen effectively, but also very specifically on performance metrics which is what we really care about when we're in competition: is am I moving slower? Am I serving less? Am I producing less power out of my legs? Which is, uh, you know, a very common issue we see. So there's definitely a performance decrement, not only a physiological, uh, you know, decrement when we see a hydration
0: loss. And what about cognitive? Like, you know, they start forgetting the score. They just played a point. And they go to the other side. They're just not sharp.
1: Yeah, 100%. And also, they get angry. So, you uh-huh. know, players that have trouble with anger, with frustration, you see them have more problems the more fatigued they get and the more dehydrated they get as well. So, we do an important aspect of when you've got players that struggle to stay focused, players that struggle to maintain positive emotion. One of the big areas we look at is nutrition and hydration. As long as their fitness level is reasonable, which we're assuming they're in pretty good physical shape, they train pretty hard, how is their nutrition and hydration going into these matches where they mentally have trouble? Because there's a big relationship between poor fueling, poor hydration, and the inability to focus, as well as the increase in frustration and negative emotions.
0: Well, I think one of the, the great tips you give, you say, at, you know don't change anything on match day but use a practice day an intense training session to actually kind of rehabituate these patterns in other words you know practice your routines you know of hydrating and eating on practice days or a practice match don't just all of a sudden do it during a regular match because you don't want to you know if, like you said if your stomach doesn't quite you know relate to it well or whatever um, i think that's a great tip and uh what about um, i'm just gonna kind of throw this in here what about this was asked by Chris who actually coaches on tour with one of the top 10 women in the world um, a former player of mine uh, Chris asked because uh, a lot of times they use uh, the milkshake uh, the chocolate milk post match and we'll get into this later but even during the matches you know the Gatorade versus other things I've used Pedialyte and you know for that um, in terms of the hydration/ nutrients during a match, Would you recommend something more like Pedialyte or or do you have things or or a generic brand? um, Or what do you suggest when somebody really needs to uh, kind of get control of their uh, hydration during a match?
1: Yeah, so with most of the Encore drinks, there's a lot of similarities among the good ones. All of them have usually some form of carbohydrate. So there's a percentage of the drink that is carbohydrate. Anyway, normally between about 3 and 7%, depending on the brand, style, things like that. Uh, so that's the energy aspect. That's the immediate fuel source. That's the short-term you know, spike in glucose, which is sugar. So some people give sugar a bad name. And the way we describe sugar is sugar has its purpose. You don't want to be taking sugar throughout the day, random times when you're not training. But if you're in an immediate, high level of training environment, it's the quickest energy source. So, so high, so high there.
0: yeah. So high glycemic foods is good, you know. At times, it depends when you exactly. Use it. Yeah. If,
1: if, yeah. If you if you need energy quickly, that's your best option. Yeah. If you don't need energy quickly, let's say it's it's seven at night and you're watching TV. You don't want high glycemic foods. That's a very bad time to take high glycemic foods. So it's just understanding that it's not everything's good, everything's bad. It's when and how do you implement these different resources that you have access to. So that's one aspect is the carbohydrate aspect of the encore drink. Then you have an electrolyte component, and that is your sodiums, your potassiums, your chlorides, things like that. And the drinks have usually the good ones anyway have a higher level of sodium than anything else. The reason being is sodium is the major electrolyte lost in sweat. You don't lose very much potassium at all. So potassium is not a major requirement to replace during activity. Potassium plays a huge role in uh, a lot of functions in the body. There's a concept known as a so- sodium-potassium pump which helps with muscle contraction, some stuff related to nerve function. So you do need potassium, and you need a good amount, but it's not the major electrolyte loss when we sweat. So, so th- sodium is the big factor.
0: So eating the banana halfway through a match, you know, a lot of people say, I need a banana. No, if you're cramping already, you're in trouble. It's not the banana.
1: Yeah, exactly. Banana by itself is not a great encore fuel snack, honestly. A couple of reasons. One, it's mainly a potassium source of electrolyte. Two, it's not the easiest thing to actually digest. There are better compounds out there to digest. So it takes... The reason we say we don't want something that's hard to digest is because it takes blood away from the working muscles and goes to the digestive tract. And that pretty much, you have a finite amount of blood available in the body. Mm -hmm. You want it going to your vital organs and specifically the working muscles that you need when you're playing tennis. So anytime you eat something that requires digestion it takes some blood away from the working muscles so those are the two big aspects of the encore drink and then the third is just the general taste and hydration aspect of it the reason most sports drinks are flavored there's actually a, a real valuable reason for that above and beyond water because most people actually drink flavored fluid at a greater rate than plain water So you actually just drink more total fluid, which is a positive. So that is why a lot of the drinks, nearly all the drinks out there, are flavored in some shape or form.
0: So, folks, this is really practical, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds because we've got uh, some material to cover. But, uh, for example, you know, and I think this is really practical where uh, we talked about the bananas because that's kind of a medium glycemic, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if you have a what's called a you know low on a gl- uh, glycemic index, if you have something that gets into the blood sugar fast, that's okay. So white bread isn't bad. In fact, bagels are one of the best things you can have on a tennis court—a plain bagel, um, because they uh, they get in there fairly fast. Um, but we don't want to have slow or slow glycemic things like you know uh, uh, milk. You're not going to drink milk before you go on a court. Um, but, you know, the high stuff would be like white bread, uh, potato. Like I used to eat a, I used to eat a baked potato raw. I mean, not raw. Baked potato, but plain. And you just have it and you can nibble on it because it's, it's really quick energy. So it's okay, as you said, for these different things, just know what you're eating.
1: No, exactly. And know when you're eating it as well. Yeah. Uh, because that's, that's a big part of this is being prepared. And everyone has different foods that they enjoy and yes. that works for them. I mean, I've had, you know, top 10 athletes in the world that have donuts in small quantities, predominantly sugar-based donuts. And it's, again, it's on court during activity. Not saying that's a recommendation <laughs> right. for everyone, right? but understanding that, you know, going through things that work for them, um, the scenarios that depending on how it's utilized. So my biggest thing is, don't get um, mm-hmm. swayed or don't get biased by opinions. Understand the facts around yes. how food gets broken down and how the body utilizes it. Because there are some consistent physiological things that happen when fuel or food gets broken down and how we utilize it.
0: Well, and this is why he said at the beginning, he said, look, we want to keep it basic and simple. But the principles... And this is what you're saying. The principles are basic and simple, but how you apply those and how they, uh, you know, for different people, it might be a different thing. Like one person might be a donut. One person might even be part of a Snickers bar. And another person, even though, you know, might have peanuts in it, that would send somebody over the top. So it just depends. Uh, But we're on court. um, So you're just saying just apply the principle, but for each person, it might be a little different.
1: 100%. And also you'll understand that just because someone else can respond well to, say, a bite or two of a Snickers bar, someone else who doesn't absorb fat very well, Mm -hmm. that Snickers bar or that donut isn't going to work very well because the fat content is going to be too high and it's not going to get broken down as well and things like that. So there are fat burners and there are carb burners out there. And based on your composition and Mm -hmm. your genetic makeup, you will need and respond better to a higher carb diet or a higher fat diet, depending on who you are. So that's why we've got to be real careful about copying other people's diets. We always try to do what the best in the world do. But when it comes to nutrition, we have to be a little careful with just saying, I'm going to eat what that person's eating. That may not be the best strategy.
0: Right, right. Along those lines, um, and this is a quick one before we get into pre-match, during-match, and post-match nutrition and hydration, is um, you mentioned in one of your uh, articles that uh, the average male athlete uses about 500 uh, calories per hour. What does a female use? So,
1: yeah, that's a really important point because 500 calories an hour is sort of a normal singles match at a relatively moderate kind of level so some of the pros we work with we've you know measured them and they're over a thousand calories an hour in a really hot humid environment really tough match things like that so that's sort of your range is between 500 to a thousand depending on the muscle mass of the person someone who's taller bigger with more muscle mass burns more calories right so you've got to understand a 150 pound athlete uh versus a 220 pound athlete the 150 pound athlete playing a tennis match versus the 220, the 220 is going to potentially burn three or 400 calories more. So that's important to recognize. And then on the female side, normally we see about 100 to 200 calories less in the same environment for the female, partly due to muscle mass. Um, and the metabolism usually is a little bit different. So that's the major reason. They usually work as hard, like from the standpoint of how many serves they hit How much court they cover within reason? There's a lot of similarities there if they're playing approximately the same level, but a lot of it has to do with the muscle mass differences.
0: Yeah, it would be common sense if if uh, if you're you know six foot two and you're trying to move, uh, you you it requires a certain amount of energy to move 200 pounds of muscle mass versus 150. It's just it's exactly. pretty simple, but
1: it just take, yeah, it, it just takes more energy to get the same result.
0: Well, it's because and the reason I bring this up is I've actually had some uh, physical trainers or people that uh, even run weight rooms that think there is no difference. Like, for example, if you're going to have uh, a, a post-match uh, or post-workout nutrient for somebody, it's the same, and it's not. It's it's. And it could be, you know, for some gals, it might be more than some guys. You know, some guys are really slight. Some gals are bigger. and it. it but it's not the same. It's, uh, you know, so anyways, the point is, is just like you said, you don't want to take somebody who's really high up in the world and take their diet. You also don't want to generalize that everybody's the same because we're not. And uh, so generally, uh, uh, guys are going to n- need to make sure they have more uh, carbs, um, replenished, you know, that in that 30 minute window after a match, um, you know, then most gals are.
1: Yeah. Not, not only carbohydrates, but we also have protein requirements as well. And there was at one time, um, a sense that protein was sort of a equivalent between size of athlete and even gender. So, there was a time when 20 grams of protein was sort of recommended as a generic amount. Um, but you know like common sense would probably dictate, we do need different amounts for the size of the athlete uh, and the, the work that was performed. So one of the big things with protein is you want high quality sources. and the definition of a high quality source, usually it is the effect it has on muscle protein synthesis. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it has a lot to do with one specific amino acid, which is called leucine. leucine and huh? you want, and that's why you'll hear like animal proteins are typically slightly higher um, on the muscle protein synthesis scale. Uh, normally they recommend, say, whey protein is a very popular, quicker-releasing, high-quality protein. And the main reason is the leucine level in that type of protein is higher than, say, a vegetable protein, um, something like that. So it's not saying the protein in itself is is, is necessarily better for you in, in the traditional sense of good versus bad. It's more talking about how it impacts muscle protein synthesis and how quickly it can help you recover.
0: Well, that's one of the things we're going to touch on a little later, so uh, this is great. So uh, getting practical uh, – Let's talk about pre-match nutrition general principles. So you'd say that the closer to the match or the training, the body can't tolerate as much fat, protein, or calories. Um, you mentioned about two to three hours prior to the match, we should have about two to three cups or 16 or so ounces of fluid. And then you kind of stagger it, you know, one hour prior than 15 minutes prior. I don't know if I've ever seen uh, people, you know, drink, you know, kind of keep their drinking going up like that. So um, if you could maybe just uh, chime in on anything on the general uh, pre-match hydration and nutrition, that would be great.
1: Sure thing. So when we're talking pre-match, it has a lot to do with not only the few hours beforehand, which is what we're talking about, the two or three hours beforehand, but also the day before. Mm -hmm. Um, We we don't want to go into an evening dehydrated in any way so we don't want to sleep through the night in a dehydrated sort of state so it's important to make sure that the hydration the day before is appropriate um, and then when we wake up and if we're playing at say 11 or 12 we have a few hours to prep that morning and normally we're not talking about drinking excessively we don't want to guzzle a lot the few hours beforehand and sort of you know try to get it in we're not cramming for a test here we want to be prepared a few days beforehand. Uh-huh. But, you know, 16 to 22 ounces for most normal sort of you know adult level college, um, older high school level tennis players is not that much fluid in a two to three hour period. It's a few sips every 15, 20 minutes. So, you know, it's not. A huge amount of fluid. We're not trying to drink, you know, you know, 48 ounces in one sitting or anything like that, because there is a real concern. Sometimes it's a concept known as hyponatremia, which is basically water intoxication. That's when someone drinks so much fluid, that usually water, that they dilute their blood. They dilute the electrolytes in the blood because they've just kept drinking and drinking and drinking, and they're only replacing with regular water that doesn't have electrolytes in it. So that's just something to be concerned of. Don't over-drink as well. But normally what we see, which is the bigger problem, is an under-drinking concern, especially when players are nervous. Players are nervous before a match. They may forget to do the basics. And by being put on a very simple drinking schedule, um, it forces them to make sure they're hydrating uh, appropriately. And it takes one more thing off the table for them to think about.
0: That's uh yeah it's real practical. Yeah, and in fact uh it, this would be jumping ahead, but one of the reasons people cramp isn't necessarily uh the dehydration. It's a big part of it is the nerves, you know, and the and the interaction between uh between the mind and body, you know, in terms of that. So a lot of times people think, "Hey, I need a banana." No, <laughs> uh, what's going on here is the stress, you know, that's uh um involved there. So that's a good thing. That's at the tip to help people when you get nervous, to have a habit, to have a ritual you can go through and that helps calm the nerves a little bit, and it helps you in terms of hydrate?
1: Yeah, most definitely. I mean, the less things that a tennis player have to, has to think about, the better they can perform. Uh, indecision is the biggest problem we see in tennis athletes in all athletes, is not being clear. Having a plan, even if it's not the best plan, is better than having no plan. So it's really important to make sure that you have very consistent concepts that work for you and that ideally are tailored for you. A lot of what we're talking about is general recommendations, which are appropriate for most people. But the higher up you go, the more specific your issues are, Mm -hmm. the more precise our evaluation needs to be. And then the more programmed and personalized that the, the training should be and how you incorporate some of this.
0: So, really good stuff. Moving on into the nutrient part of this, um, we and to keep it simple, you give the general principle, consume enough to prevent fatigue and blood sugar level drop. And that amount is based on your body weight, metabolism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a... Maybe you can expound on this. It's a one carb per one kilogram body weight times the number of hours. In other words, if you're if you're about uh, 70 kilograms, uh, which is about 150 pounds or something like that, and you you don't uh, play for three hours, it's good to have about 200, you know, 250, you know, carbs, g- uh, grams of carbs before you're playing. Is there a general kind of ballpark idea for people that maybe you could say, look, if it's three hours before or two hours before, this is kind of what you eat? Maybe some real practical uh, examples.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the biggest thing is you've got to find foods that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. And in any diet, whether you're vegetarian, whether you don't like certain foods or certain things you're allergic to, whatever restrictions you may have chosen or otherwise, There's food that we can make work. So we've worked with every possible diet under the sun and figured out a way to make sure they've got their macronutrient profile appropriate. That's how much carbs, how much fat, how much protein, making sure we're good to go. So for example, a pre-max, you may have a whole wheat bagel with an egg, a few egg whites, some low-fat cheese, a little side of, say, strawberries or a fruit cup. Um, and then you know, and, and then make sure you get your fluid in there, and that gives you a pretty solid pre-match meal with carbs, with a little bit of fat, with some protein, but not excessively on the fat side. It's mainly a carbs with some protein um, situation. You know, so that that's a very simple way to do it. If it's lunch, you know, a typical turkey sandwich is the go-to most of the time when you have tournaments. You have a few hours off between matches. Things like that you know you'll get about in most sizes you'll get about a thousand calories in a, in a mid-sized kind of sandwich from a, a, most um, you know convenience stores you know fast casual restaurants things like that. So depending on what topics of course you put on it um, they can add or subtract from that thousand calories. so if you remove the cheese remove the dressings things like that you can drop that down to 600 700 for most people. If you need the extra calories, want the extra calories, you may add, you know, extra cheese, you may add extra dressings that are calorie rich. So just depending on what you're trying to accomplish, you can adjust uh very easily uh those type of options.
0: You mentioned something that's uh that I think is really helpful in addition to that. So let's say you've had that meal three hours before the match and you start feeling, man, I'm feeling a little hungry, you know, before As you talked about, maybe 30 minutes prior, have a little applesauce or some crackers or some light fruit or something like that.
1: Yeah, so there's a real interesting concept um, that needs to be accounted for, and people many times make a mistake here. If you're feeling like you need a little extra, and many people do and many people should, consume something. It's the timing of the consumption that many times people make a mistake on. You don't want to pretty much consume anything within about 45 minutes. So 45 minutes to an hour beforehand is a bit of a risky time to eat. The reason being is you you can spike your blood sugar uh, and then it will drop quite quickly. And usually it drops right when you're about to walk on court. So that's where (laughs) you see a lot of... Exactly. And that's where you see a lot of people, they walk on court, they're a little lethargic, they've got maybe a slight headache, they just feel slow, sluggish, and they don't really know why. And this happens a lot. And the reason is they miss time their pre-match snack. And so the better option, and you see Nadal do it, you see a lot of players do it, they'll actually eat something during the warm-up of their match. They'll go on court and they'll take a gel or a chew or a bar or some type of snack, pretty much five, 10 minutes before they start playing their match. Reason being is you have this response in the body where it notices, hey, I'm getting more calories, I'm getting more carbohydrates in my system, and it pulls it immediately from the bloodstream to the working muscles, so it gets used immediately instead of spiking and then dipping. So it's real, really important to time that pre-max snack appropriately. This is not a full meal. This is just a little snack to sort of make sure that your fuel tank is fi- completely full
0: so it's a high glycemic type thing it gets into the blood system pretty quick but it does it's not a lot of volume so you don't feel full um what about something exactly. like what's something like about a i I've seen these honey straws they're like a honey stick and you you know you yep. you cut the end of that and that's suck a, that
1: yeah that's a great example of a high glycemic quick releasing you know glucose. You know, it could be glucose, fructose. There's a few different varieties but basically it's carbohydrates in the simplest form, easily digestible, um, and it goes in the bloodstream quick. So there's all sorts of brands out there that have something similar, quick releasing, very, very quick to get the energy from it. Uh, And again, timing of that's really important. If you have that now beforehand, it's going to cause you problems because you're going to get a spike and then you're going to get a dip. If you have it within 10, 15 minutes before your max starts, then it's an appropriate time period to do that. So timing becomes the number one priority when we're talking about those things.
0: Well, this is what, when I mentioned at the beginning, you could go through all these hours, all this preparation, you feel great, and then uh, you you get messed up because of what you're doing in terms of your eating. So this is a classic, uh, great example that Mark has just shared that maybe the timing, you just change a little bit there. During match now, so we've talked about before the match and now during the match, you talk about the hydration, you need to maintain the good level to avoid fatigue. Um, and uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but what happens to the body such that improper hydration leads to things like, you know, errors, cognitive fatigue, you know, things like this. So what happens to the so, Up, uh, we lose. You mentioned about losing leg strength, etc. I mean, just real briefly, like so people understand, hey, look, if you don't hydrate during the match, this is what happens.
1: Yeah, so in simple terms, what's happening is you, you don't have as much fluid in the system is, is exactly what's happening, and that fluid uh, is, is blood. And, you know, the, the blood doesn't get to the working muscles as effectively. The oxygen capacity that is available is slightly reduced. So all these things that typically happen relatively seamlessly – and the body's great at, you know, maintaining a an appropriate level for enzyme function, for ability to shuttle oxygen effectively to the needed areas of the body. That's uh, impacted a little bit. Uh, a slight dehydration impacts it just slightly, whereas pretty severe dehydration impacts it pretty severely. So that's why there's a spectrum of results based on how the body adjusts and adapts to those. But that's really, in simple terms, what happens. The body's just not as efficient in its ability to do its normal daily functions that it needs to do because the impact of dehydration. The other thing that's important also is when you're not well hydrated, core temperature rises quicker than when you're well hydrated. So that means that you feel hotter, and when you're hotter, you're... Enzyme function doesn't work always as well because enzymes are designed to function in a certain temperature range. And when you push them outside their comfort zone, they don't do as well. So that impacts a lot of different variables when the body is somewhat dehydrated, when it impacts um, temperature, and that has this cascade of negative outcomes on performance, but also if we get too severe on health. And that's even a bigger problem. Is the inability to function in hot and humid environments. And we hear every year of these tragic scenarios of players that are playing tennis and pass out or rush to the hospital due to heat, heat illness, things like that. And again, a lot of factors go into that. But one of the preemptive things we can do is make sure we have great nutrition, are in great physical shape, and are very well hydrated.
0: Yeah. And like you said, that you know, in those situations, I'm sure that even starts a couple of days before, you know, at least a day before they even get there because of the uh, the temperature differences from maybe where they normally train or something. So um, during changeovers, you talk about you know four to twelve sips. You know, it's about four to twelve ounces of water every every changeover. You know, just make sure you do. I know some players they want to keep the momentum going, and they just say, "Hey, I'm going to speed it up," so they go from one side to the other, which can be a good tactic. But you just got to make sure you're well aware that hey you also need to be getting your, uh, your hydration. And then you mentioned how much sodium per eight fluid ounces. It's, and this is why it's important to have maybe not only water, but some other kind of electrolyte drink. Maybe, maybe touch on that.
1: Yeah, so sodium amounts is quite challenging because general recommendations aren't very useful because everyone's sweat rate, right. so the speed that they sweat is different and everyone's sodium content level is different. So both those factors contribute to what the recommendations should be for an individual. And the challenge is we have people that, you know, are on the very low spectrum of sodium. You know, uh, you know it, it, it's very, very low, a few hundred milligrams. They may lose per hour. And then you have people that are very high in the thousands. And that big range makes it difficult if we're trying to recommend broad scale okay. recommendations. Because the individual that has a low amount of sodium loss, they don't need a lot. If you give them too much sodium, they're going to have a, a dry mouth feel. They're going to not, not feel as good. It may even impact their stomach because they're getting high levels of sodium that they can't process easily. They're not used to it. Whereas individuals that have very high sodium losses due to sweat uh, and respiration as well, um, they actually may uh, need significantly higher than what's available in any commercial product. So when we work with our athletes, we do a a sodium analysis and we do a sweat rate analysis. The reason being is we don't want to under-recommend and we definitely don't want to over-recommend sodium or hydration. So we need to know the exact range that's most appropriate for that athlete.
0: So for your average average Joe who doesn't have uh, the the privilege of having you do an analysis on him, what would – what would be something that's pretty mid range? You know, sure. they have their water, and what, what maybe a, a product out there they might like besides Pedialyte, you know, if they want to don't want to do that because that can be a little expensive, or you get the generic brand that has that in there, what might be some options?
1: Sure thing. So, you know, if you go, the cheapest option is a Gatorade, rate type product that's out there, gas station based, supermarket based, very accessible. Uh, that's a starting point because that's actually considered a low-sodium product. Most people don't realize, but a Gatorade is considered a low-sodium product. It's significantly less than any canned soup that's out there, and most people don't realize that. They think there's a lot of electrolytes in Gatorade, and Mm -hmm. there really isn't for an active adult, an active player. So normally what we recommend is usually you go and you'll get – um, a salt packet from McDonald's or Burger King or something like that, similar size amount, you know. Um, you know, uh, uh, And then you put either half or a full packet into a 20-ounce bottle, shake it up, and you've got your extra sodium that you may need. But again, you've got to be a little careful with how much sodium because especially if you've got blood pressure issues, right. things like that, right. listen to your doctor don't um, you know t- take advice o- over a podcast but in <laughs> right. general a recommendation is the off-the-shelf products are all going to be relatively low sodium products and then most people need above and beyond what an over-the-counter product is going to be
0: okay great and i know i want to respect your time uh, we want to talk about the nutrients in the during the match uh, portion um i think it's i've i've read somewhere where you've mentioned it's you know a 4 to 1 carb uh, pro ratio um uh, protein ratio um maybe something like 30 to 60 grams of carb uh, uh carbohydrates per hour um and then uh you know that's probably something like one or two uh you know, energy bars or something that I think they generally have a pretty good four to one ratio or something like that. Uh, Maybe speak on that.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of options when you're on court and a lot of it has to do with flavor profile, taste profile, types of food. Some people don't like bars. They find them too chewy, difficult to chew during a changeover. Some people prefer drinks. You can get it from a lot of sources, drinks, chews, gels, uh, bars, uh, all sorts of varieties. And the thing they all have in common is they have carbohydrates. All of them do. Some have some protein. Most don't have a lot of fat, if any fat, because of the it, it's harder to break down. So the question is how much extra protein do you want when you play? Protein by itself isn't a great fuel source during activity. We're not utilizing that protein for energy immediately. There are some studies that show it may help a little bit in your recovery, time window Mm -hmm. the sooner to activity you get protein but in general most scenarios recommend the carbohydrates as the priority during that time window a little bit of protein is fine just don't go over that four to one sort of ratio of carbohydrates to protein we don't want like a 50 50 split on carbs and protein right so that's the important thing to remember and then post tennis that's when the protein becomes a bit more of a priority to help with recovery, repair, uh, and, and getting the body ready for the next exercise bout.
0: Well, here we go. I, I, I'd like to touch on this uh, post-match, and I think there's a lot of things that are, um, I think there's a lot of things that are neglected about this. And this is, you know, people play the match and go, "Whew, I'm through that one." Okay, let's, you know, then then they don't realize that what you do after this is really important in terms of preparing for not only the next match if you have one that day, but the next day. Even if you don't have a match following, you know that, that same day, um, your your muscle glycogen, you know that that's your energy is the, the carbohydrate energy is being pulled from those muscles, and within from what I understand, within thirty minutes or so of, of uh, uh, extensive exercise, those muscles are they're hungry. They they that's when they're receptive for that uh, for that rebuild, and we need to get carbos and protein in there. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So you know, there's this concept of you know, after you exercise, your body's being broken down. You're either in an anabolic state or a catabolic state. A catabolic state is breakdown. And when you're training for tennis, when you're playing matches, your body's getting broken down. You're not developing or growing or adapting at that time. You're actually being broken down. What you're trying to do is shift your body from a catabolic or breakdown state to an anabolic or growth state. And the sooner uh, after competition or training you can consume fluids, carbohydrates, and proteins predominantly, the quicker you can shift from breakdown to repair or recovery. So that's why it's recommended to try to get as much of this good nutrition in the athlete as soon as possible after they play. Normally what we recommend is to try to have them do an active cool down of some sort, whether it's on a bike or like jog, something along those lines. And while they're doing that, they're going to be consuming their post-match snack. It's not a full meal, it's a snack. Usually it incorporates 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates and about 20 to 30 grams of protein. You know, So that's a, a few hundred calories, probably two to 400 calories, depending on the size of the athlete. It's easy to digest normally it's usually a shake of some sort and then they're going to go and shower they're going to stretch they're going to speak to friends whatever it is they do if they're a pro they're going to do media all that type of stuff and then about an hour to two hours after the match that's when they're going to have their sit down meal where they're going to probably consume a thousand to fifteen hundred calories maybe up to two thousand calories depending on how hard the match was
0: yeah and that i think that uh, that um carbohydrate level you mentioned that's i i looked this i was looking around the kitchen actually and that'd be something like even a raisin uh a raisin bagel that's about 250 yeah. calories and it's got about the almost the four to one uh protein uh carbo protein that we're talking about i mean obviously if you don't like that there are many other things but and then you mentioned no, about, exactly yeah and that, you,
1: and that's the that's the important part it doesn't have to be a shake or anything like that it can be whole foods it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with Foods as an option. The reason the shakes are liked a lot is because they're easy to travel with. Um, they go down quickly. And so you can do them while you're doing something else. Right. But yeah, there's, every option that's available in a shake format or a bar format is available in, in full food as well.
0: Yeah. And then you mentioned uh, obviously real critical is uh, is any hydration loss, you know, 20, 24 ounces per pound loss. Now, ideally, you don't want to have that pound loss, like I mentioned, uh, you know, with my daughter in our experiment this morning. You know, uh, I remember coming home when I when I uh, even swam when I was uh, younger competitively. I'd come home, I'd be five pounds lighter, and you don't necessarily think you're sweating, but you're losing a lot of water. And the same thing with even coaching. You talked about respi- uh you know, you're uh, you lose a lot of fluids through just rep- respiration. Just talking on this podcast, I get de- you can get dehydrated. And so when you're out there coaching for a long period of time or then you're running and breathing, even, even if you're not a sweater externally, you're breathing, you're losing a lot of fluids through the mouth. So is it reasonable to think that they're not going to lose? Is the goal not to lose any weight uh, because of the hydration or generally most people are going to lose a pound or two and you just got to get that fluid in with the 20 to 24 ounces per pound?
1: Yeah, exactly. We we expect a pound or two, especially in a high level uh, athlete that is playing in hot and humid conditions, because we know sweat rates on the guy side, for example, for most guys is somewhere between one and a half to three um, yo. Know, uh, so what we're losing there is pretty significant. We have a pretty big range, so we're trying to replace that that's lost. So we can't do that on court with just regular drinking. It's 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 not feasibly possible. Mm-hmm. So that's the important part is making sure that your athletes don't expect to be even when they get off the court. But we don't want to be five or seven pounds under our pre-weight. One to two pounds is pretty acceptable because we know within an hour we can replace that with 20 to 24 ounces, maybe even up to 30 or 34 ounces fluid uh, in that hour or so after we finish.
0: And I think the key is that, like you say, it's it's right away, because I think a lot of people, the first thing they do after they play, if they're on a team, a high school team, or if they're on a college team, or even if they're playing a tournament, is they're going to go, you know, most people don't go out and stretch, don't hydrate, or like you say, take the snack. It's maybe socialize, go talk to parents, or things like that. So you got to make sure that you're disciplined. And you can still do that, but just do it while you're – you know, you can talk and socialize while you're stretching, while you're hydrating and eating your, uh, your snack.
1: Yes, most definitely. And the nice thing now, you see it at the professional level. You even see it at the college level in most environments. This is pretty much well accepted now. So we're seeing a lot of people understanding that the recovery shake is sort of a standard, just like, you know, putting your shoes on before matches, taking your shoes off after matches. It sort of is part of the uh, locker room uh, environment now. Most players do it. Uh, and that's a great thing because that's easy to do, easy to implement, doesn't impact schedule, uh, but it can help with your recovery process.
0: Can I mention one other thing? I think along these lines, I think rolling or doing some form of stretching afterwards, you know, we've. We've known that it helps with, and you can expand on this, I'm sure, obviously with uh, more technical ex- expertise, but we uh, we get rid of lactic acid buildup when we do some rolling on a foam roller. We even have the stick. Sometimes even during a match, I'll do that with some guys. I'll just roll their calves and their and their uh, quads just to make sure they're keeping those loose. But that helps with circulation. So if we're dehydrated and, you know, so we get off a of court, we need to hydrate and do some rolling, doesn't that help with the circulation, getting the nutrients through the body and get you looser?
1: Yeah, most definitely. Anything that helps with blood flow is typically a good thing. So this actually ties into one of the big challenges out there with a lot of people is overusing, say, ice or even ice baths as a recovery modality because it slows, it actually shunts blood to the area. And what we want to do is we actually want to increase blood flow to the area. So if you actually think about it, an active recovery, riding the bike, for example, is a very good thing because it keeps blood flow going, keeps blood moving. Um, But then a lot of players will then ice their legs or they'll do an ice bath. And there's an analgesic response or a pain-relieving response. If you don't feel your legs, you don't feel anything. So that's the benefit of it. There's a perceived benefit. But we also know from some research studies out there that if you do that consistently, you actually perform worse in strength, speed, and power activities over the medium and long term compared to individuals that won't ice those areas. And that makes total sense physiologically because our objective is to get blood flow, quality blood to the area. And anytime we shut an area down or reduce the ability for good oxygenated blood to get there, um, it limits our recovery timeline and our recovery capabilities.
0: Well, what would you say then, um, this is a great point, because uh, we understand it, I think, even visually. Somebody's got, let's say, their legs are pretty tired. You know, they instead of going, they're getting uh, uh, ice on their knees right away or, or, you know, maybe they get on a bike and they just, you know, cool down. Well, what would you do for your arm? Let's say your arms sore after a match or your elbows sore after a match, and generally they on throw ice on those uh, puppies right away. What would you do as a cool down for that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, we, that that used to be the recommendation. Ice everything down. It was very common to ice down anything, everything. That was the typical recommendation. But uh, like a lot of things that we do, we've learned more. The research has led us in a... A uh, different direction based on some data and also based on understanding physiological principles a little bit better is we want active recovery. And with the arm, you know, we don't want to go out and say, move the arm a bunch because we're already pretty tired. So you don't want to excessively do it. We'll use electrical modalities and we we'll use a few different things that actually allow for blood to pump to the area consistently without us overusing the arm. So that just keeps blood flow going. Uh, which is really valuable. Uh, you can heat it up. You can put some a heating pad or something like that so we keep blood flow moving in the area. So there's a few things like that that can really play a role in making sure we get good blood flow to the area.
0: Wow. Um, and... You know, as we close up here, because I know, uh, I know you have uh, a lot of other uh, things going on. Is um, I just have another question that some uh, a listener uh, posed. Is you know, how does an athlete with a high metabolism keep weight on while they're still maintaining this balanced diet? Plus, they're on the court. And this is a this is a collegiate level player, um, and uh, you know, pretty pretty accomplished player, and they're but they're just having a hard time. You know, they're in the weight room. They're trying to put on some muscle mass. That, you know, to get stronger and quicker. You know, but they they have a hard time doing that. So, what do you suggest to to players like that?
1: Yeah, so you know that's one of the easier challenges we usually <laughs> face because most players, a lot of players, have trouble you know maintaining optimum body composition so that they're not putting on extra say body fat or even right. excessive muscle mass sometimes. So, what you're describing is more the opposite: the individual that has a very fast metabolism, is typically an ectomorph, meaning that yes. they're relatively thin, right. hard for them to maintain a lot of muscle mass. When they work out, they, they lose everything quite quickly. Um, so with them, it's very important that we get them on a structured eating plan where their calories are provided at every two hours or so and that they can consistently be eating. And then we'll usually do some night feeding protocols We will actually feed them after dinner, before they go to bed, a pretty heavy protein um, and even some fat, kind of a shake, usually a shake because it's easier to digest at that time period, and that will allow them to have enough nutrients overnight uh, to consume. Then then upon waking, they'll actually have a shake before breakfast. Uh, So we'll utilize relatively heavy caloric shakes, meaning that they're high-calorie shakes, uh, to make sure that we're upping our calorie consumption throughout the day. And normally it's relatively easy to do. You've just got to find food that the athlete likes and then opportunities throughout the day where the, mm-hmm. you can actually make sure that they consume what's required.
0: Okay, well, I'm sure if it's a chocolate shake, a milkshake, I'm, I'm sure you'd be happy, but uh, yeah, I don't think that's no, what exactly. you're talking about.
1: And, that, and, <laughs> and a lot of the time that's what we, we do. We say right. we're, we're good with full full cream ice cream in the shade, especially (laughs) for those individuals because they need the calories, and that's a lot of the time how we get them.
0: Right. Well, before we close, uh, I just wanted to give you, um, I know you have a lot of things going on, and and I think you have some, uh, maybe you want to mention your uh, website, but you also do with ITPA, you have um, your footwork uh, clinics going on, maybe maybe touch on those uh, before we sign off.
1: Yeah, so we've got always a lot going on. It's always fun. So through the International Tennis Performance Association, we've got uh, the Movement and Footwork Language course, which is something that's been... uh, ongoing for the last couple of years. And it's really just putting together consistent language uh, from a lot of coaches, physical trainers around the world, and trying to make sure that we're all using the same language. It goes through 37 of the most important movements on the tennis court and then also how to potentially train them, progressions and regressions. So that's March 8th in Atlanta. Uh, if you go to the itpa-tennis.org website, you can learn more about the schedule and the agenda and to register. So I would love to see see you there. We're also doing the Tennis Fitness Combine. Uh, this is for junior players aged 12 through 18 to our institute in Atlanta on March 9th. And this is really testing them on 14 variables that are very important for tennis success. And it really allows them to get a snapshot of where they are currently, how they compare to their peers, And then also what they need to do to get to a collegiate level or even if some are aspirational trying to play professionally, what may need to be improved upon to get to those physical levels. Uh, And then they can also reach us at our institute at KovacsInstitute.com. A lot of different courses that we have up there on different topics. Uh, And then follow on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at PhD. That's my personal one, please reach out to me. Uh, ask questions on there. I'm on there pretty frequently.
0: That's great. So on the uh, on the uh, for the juniors, um, if they go to the uh, the combine, is that something? Then you actually not only just measure them, but you know that's the descriptive. But what the, what about the prescriptive? Do you give them something that they can go back home with and say, "Hey, this is what you need to work on." This these are the exercises yeah, you need to do. Yeah, hundred
1: percent. So every player gets a full report showing their strength and their opportunities and their strengths and opportunities are based on over 30 years of normative data for athletes at their age in their sport. Um, And then comparing that to also they can see how does this compare to, if I'm a 14-year-old, how does this compare to the best 18 and unders? And how does that compare to the college players? And how does that compare to the pros? So you can really see aspirationally where you may be today, how you compare to the best in the country today, and also how you need to improve on to get to whatever next level it is that you're working on,
0: and I would say there though that you know they just like in developmental. A lot of people develop at a different rate. So you know, let's say a kid goes there and he's under average well that's not necessarily saying he can't get there it's just you know he might be tall and lanky or she may be tall and lanky at that age but you know some of the most tall and lanky athletes ended up uh being phenomenal i remember uh, lindsey davenport when i and jeff abrams and people like that i saw when they were playing you know they were tall and lanky and didn't move that much pretty soon you know lindsey's number one in the world so uh you know they'll just learn how to uh be more efficient in getting there given their stage
1: yeah, most definitely. And that's the biggest thing is it's not talking about one specific variable. It looks at these 14 areas that you need to be good at most of them. not all of them, right. but most of them to be a successful tennis player. And players develop at different stages, but we do know that there are things that you're going to be strong at and then areas that you're not going to be as strong at. And it gives you a framework to what areas should they train to improve, And that's
0: really, really important. Great. That's great stuff. Well, uh, Mark, as usual, thanks so much for your time and input, taking uh, time out of your day. I know folks will really appreciate uh, the info you gave us. And obviously, they can go on uh, your website and look at information. I'm going to have some summary stuff uh, up as well. Um, I didn't have it up f- uh, first. Sometimes I give them stuff to look at uh, while they're listening to the podcast. But I wanted to make sure because uh, there, there was even a few things in there that you uh, – Uh, tweaked or said, Hey, uh, you know, I gave a general principle and you said, yeah, but we need to do, you know, think about this. So that's good. Uh, um, And I really appreciate you coming on and and taking the time. So thanks again.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Great. that You're doing this. You have great guests on, Uh, keep up the good work with everything you're doing and excited to be back on in the future as well.
0: Good. Well, folks, you've been listening to the coach Steve Clark PhD show with Dr. Mark, Kovacs. He's the CEO and senior manager of sports science and coaching education for the USTA as well and highly involved, uh, as I mentioned, in the ITPA and the ITA Intercollegiate Tennis Coach Association. And uh, be sure you, you go to his website, as he mentioned, that's www.kovaxinstitute.com and, and uh, you know, look up some of his things and his resources. Um, if you go to my website, that's CoachSteveClarkPhD.com, you'll find uh, blogs, podcasts, uh, resources, and other, uh, other items for your uh, use. Um, it's all free there, so just take a look there. Um, feel free to drop me a line with your questions or comments regarding my podcast or other things, um, anything really, um, at Steve at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. And um, as I say always before, uh, before we take off, and I say this to my players and students all the time, let her rip.